Welcome back for yet another week. We are beginning Paragir Gimel of Sefer Shoftim, the story of Shimshon. Our learning is dedicated to Lina Shmarivka Bakakov Alevi, Lucy Maya, and Rina D. Rafua Shlema for Tihila Batia Bakhayatova, Brahvika Bakhokito, Yitidihaim Ben Avira Bakhaya, Shalm Chayasara, Shimon Ben Elka, and Shadokhim for all those in need. Since the very beginning of when we started, I, there was a part of me that was both excited, anticipating getting up to Shimshon, and at the same time, there was a little bit of fear and trepidation because of all the characters that we've explored so far, Shimshon is by far the most complicated. The amount that you can study and the amount that you could prepare and the amount that you could learn simply to present a slice of who Shimshon is, is daunting. And so... I approach this by saying that no matter what, we're not going to do more than just scratch the surface. And so my hope in learning Shimshon is to at least dispel some of the notions that we have from childhood of who Shimshon is, get rid of the picture of Samson, the, the mighty, mighty warrior, um, and also to explore the inner depths of Shimshon and try to understand that Shimshon is a very complicated figure. So after Yiftach, and after Yiftach's daughter, and someone did comment, they were like, 50 minutes last week? They're like, that is so much longer than usual. It's true. And, and even with that, I feel like we didn't get to the full extent of Yiftach. But after Yiftach, we really wonder what comes next. And the question is, how low can you go? Can the Jewish people truly sink any lower than Yiftach? And we're introduced to Shimshon Hagibor. And this is, of course, the picture of Shimshon ripping the lion apart, which is really most impressive. And so the question is, did we misunderstand Yiftach all these years? Our entire life, for most of us, is Yiftach is a gym rat. Yiftach is this guy that could bench press anything. And the question is, is that really true? And so what I would like to try to do over the next couple of weeks, as we spend a month learning about Shimshon, is I'd like to do a take two. Kind of look at Shimshon from a different light and say, see if perhaps we can come up with a different take on it. And so we're going to start at the end. This is a beautiful picture. Thank you to Josh Sirwadian for sending it to me. He went bike riding um, to Kever Shimshon this week, sent me this live chat. Um, I've gone hiking there several times. It is an interesting place. It's a stunning, stunning view. The view behind the Kever to me is actually um, what's most impressive because that is the expansive view from the top of this mountain. And you see the area of Tsara and Eshtaol, which is the area that the Torah indicates where Shimshon lived. Whether this is indeed Kever Shimshon, I'm not sure. There's a lot of Torah on it. Great article that we'll probably touch on in the final week of Shimshon. It's, it's probably not Shimshon's Kever, but it is certainly in the area where Shimshon grew up, where Shimshon lived, and where Shimshon was a shofate for the Jewish people. So let's take a look. A checklist for Shimshon. What have we thought all of our lives? So probably most of us 
thought that Shimshon was of superhuman strength. He could do just about anything. And so that is a question that we have to kind of explore. We're not really going to get to today. Today is really more the, the pre-Shimshon story. But that's, that's the first question. Was Shimshon really superhuman in terms of his strength? Is he a holy man? We view most of the Shoftim, certainly from our childhood, as these amazing people. They are wonderful of character. But we've sort of seen a steady decline. Gedon, Yiftach. And now we're going to enter into the story of Shimshon. And then the question is, is he really a Shofet? And if he is a Shofet, what is the very definition of a Shofet? Is a Shofet a leader? Is a Shofet someone that, that is uh, embraced by the people? We don't really see that. He doesn't lead the people in battle. He doesn't do anything to impact them. What, in fact, is the deal with Shimshon? And so we're going to try to see if these things are true or false. But I'd like to do something first. And this is something that I've done many times over the years of teaching. And that is, we take a look at a character and we ask the question, are they good or are they bad? So let's take a look at the first character that we'll choose. Avram Avinu, good or bad? My guess is that most of us, if we're a part of this group, would believe and feel, which I do 100%, that Abraham is a good character. There's no gray, there's no, it's black and white. Abraham is good. And so from Abraham, go to Paro. Paro, let's say the Paro of the Egypt, Egypt story. What about him? We'd all say that Paro is wicked. He is pure bad. And that's where we get to Shimsho. In fact, is this haggard looking character Shimshon, one of the Google images. Is this, in fact, Shimshon? I don't know if he looked like that. But even if this is how Shimshon looked, the question is, is he good or bad? Well, as the story goes on, we're going to have moments where we're going to say, wow, he's good. We're also going to have moments where we're going to look at him and say, wow, he's not. And so that kind of leaves us in this gray area. What are we supposed to do with Shimshon? Before we start, even the first pasuk, I want to introduce our opponent. Our opponent is not 100% new to us. We're introduced to the Plishtim the very first time as potential enemies to the Jewish people in Parashat Bashalaf. They couldn't go because it was close. Hashem's concern was that they would go backwards and go back to Egypt. Okay. So that is the very first time that we're introduced there. There is, for those people that really paid attention closely in Shoftim, and you could easily have missed it, is between Atniel and Ehud, we have this like little one Pasuk Shofet Shamgar ben And Shamgar ben who was the enemy that he defeated? He defeated the Plishtim with an ox goad, with this uh, tool that was used to take care of the oxen. So the Plishtim are our opponents. Question is, what do we know about the about the Plishtim? So it's a it's a fascinating, fascinating uh, historical note here is that there was a tribe that started 
all the way up in the area of Greece, and eventually they would end out up on some of the islands, perhaps Crete. And they made their way both by boat and by land, the land of Israel, and eventually to Egypt. And they would actually go to battle with Egypt. And it was Ramses III that defeats the Plishtim. He slaughters many of them. And then what he does is he drives them back out of the land of Egypt, and he gives them permission to settle in the land of Israel along the coast in the area that we now know as the Gaza Strip and above, going all the way up to Ashkelon and Ashdod. And it's an area, a beautiful area that hugs the coast, which makes sense if they're water people, they're seafaring people, that that's where they, where they work. And he actually makes an alliance with them, where Egypt officially makes them a proxy of their army. It's fascinating. Saw it both in Rabbi Hatton, but also if you Google it, you'll be able to find interesting articles that describe it as well. In fact, Ramses III, he, he made a monument to his, his victory at Medinat Habu. Probably didn't pronounce that correctly. And at that location on this huge, huge building, he has hieroglyphics and pictures. And the pictures are of the Egyptians defeating the, uh, the Plishtim. And if you look carefully at the upper corner of the picture, you'll note that the hairstyle is not Egyptian. It's more of a braid type thing. And their weapons, they have swords, pretty impressive looking swords. And uh, somewhere, I can't find it in this picture, but uh, this is not my strong suit. There are supposed to be wagons with the women and children to represent the fact that they came in mass with their whole families and everything, and they're defeated. They become a proxy of Egypt. They're incredibly talented with metal. Their swords from this picture will indicate that. They have chariots etc. But when they come and settle in Canaan, they become a little bit of a hybrid. They're related to the Egyptians in terms of their military alliance. They worship the local Canaanite gods, but their burial practice is similar to Greek burial practice where they originally originate from, and their pottery also had distinct similarities, not to the Canaanite local um, pottery, but rather the pottery of Greece at the time. So it's just, it's an interesting phenomenon that you have these people that are somewhat of a hybrid. They represent the old from where they came to where they went, to who they interact with. And they are the people that are going to be battling against the Jewish people. And they're different than most of the other stories that we've dealt with in Sefer Shoftim because it's not a one-time enemy and it's not a one-time moment, but it is a moment that will continue for quite some time. But Manhattan does point out a parenthetical uh, historical note, but which is, is interesting to know, is that Plishtim are actually similar to Palestine. That's where the name Palestine came from. And he asks, when did Palestine get introduced? And he said, when the Romans destroyed the uh, land of Israel, they renamed it Palestine. And they did that because what they wanted to do is they wanted to change the facts on the ground. They wanted to completely eliminate the Jewish claim to the land to say that the Jews were never there. And yet, and really it was a plishti, a Palestine, Palestinian land for years and years and years and years. 
there's no relationship between Palestine of today and the Palestinians and Palestine of the Roman renaming after the land of Israel. But there is the, the want to divorce the Jewish people from having any connection to the land itself. Okay, with that, maybe not so short introduction, I want to begin the story of Shimshon. One thing is for sure, the Plishtim will be a thorn in the side of the Jewish people for a long time. They're not going to go away when Shimshon dies. And so let's start with the very first passage. The Jewish people continue to do evil in the eyes of God. And God puts them in the hands of the Plishtim for 40 years. But by Alex Israel points out, 40 years, wait a second. When we started Sefer Shoftim, it usually was that the Shofim lasted for 40 years. Suffering for a short amount, peace and tranquility for a long amount. Suffering, peace. Suffering, peace. And now we reach the point where it's suffering and peace. The process reverses. So they were Hashem. They were bad in the eyes of God. Um, but they probably were not bad in their own eyes. The Jewish people don't see that they're bad. They don't see that they're the problem. They see that everything's fine, except that they're suffering at the hands of the Plishtim. And there was a man from Tsara, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah. And she was an Akara. She was incapable of having children. She hasn't had children yet. I have to tell you that when I was, the, the day that we made Aliyah, and anybody that makes Aliyah knows it is an incredibly overwhelming day. The day that we made Aliyah, we, we landed, we collected all our thousands of bags, pounds and pounds of stuff, loaded into the coach bus that was taking the families that were making Aliyah to Beit Shemesh. And it's overwhelming, and I was exhausted, and my kids are exhausted. And we came on the highway, the 38, right off the one. And it's possible that that was the first time that I was on the 38. If not, it was one of the first times I remember being on the 38. And you see this big sign that says Tzara. You see Tzara, and then eventually you see Eshtaol. Or actually, maybe it's the other way around. But yeah, first you see Eshtaol, and then you see Tzara. And to me, that moment was so amazing, because I was like, wow. We are actually living truly in the lands of our forefathers. We're walking in the ways of the prophets. And so that's, you have this guy, Manoah, and he is from Sheva Dan. Uh, and it doesn't have to tell us what family in Sheva Dan he's from, because Dan only has one family. They all come from Hushim, and his wife can't have children. And an angel of God comes to the woman, and says to her, you are a akara. You have not had children. You're going to become pregnant and have a child. There actually is an opinion that was that he was coming to say not that she will become pregnant, but rather that she is already pregnant. I believe that that is the opinion of the Abarbanel. Most of the other Mepharshim don't feel that way. He says, listen, these are the rules. You cannot drink wine or, or alcoholic beverages 
and do not eat anything that is tamay, anything that is impure. And because you're you're going to give birth and you're going to have a son and a razor cannot touch his head. Because he's going to be a Nazir. He's going to be someone that is consecrated to God in that holy way that a Nazir is by not consuming wine, by not eating pure things and not touching impure things and not getting a haircut. And he will begin the process of saving the Jewish people from the Klishtim. That's that is what he's going to do. So the it's the Mitsuda's David that says, It's a start, but it's not the finish. All the other shoftim completely neutralized, destroyed the enemy, not so with Shimshon. He is going to lessen it. But the defeat of the Plishim will not take place until many, 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 many years later. So what's the deal with this idea of becoming a uh, of becoming a Nazir? Why does he have to be a Nazir? So the says, The picture, the vision, the instructions that she got that she gets has to tell her what she can eat. That he could only consume tower products. And he has to be a Nazir Hashem from the stomach, from the womb. And that will give him a good, pure disposition. And that's to be a contrast to the nature of the Plishtim who eat all those things that are Tamey, and, and drink. From wine, it's going to create a clash of values. He believes in tahara. He believes in abstinence from wine. They believe in tuma and excess. That says the Abarbanel. The Abarbanel continues later on and says the going to do weird things. God doesn't want anybody to ever look and say, the reason why Shimshon is, Shimshon is because he's, he's drunk. This is not the behavior of a sane person. It must be that he is a raging alcoholic. And from the, the, from the birth, he has to be that way. Should never have any razor touch his head. And his hair should be all tangled. And he should be, in a way, expressing his avelut, his sadness over the fact that the Jewish people are suffering. And he's going to want constantly to get some sort of revenge on them.
that is, that's the picture of what Shimshon is. And so, if you don't, if you're not looking inside, you're just reading it. You hear the word ishan, ishan. It's a throw-up. The woman came, and she says, "La ish shelat her husband, A man of God has come to me. She's not clear. Is this a man of God or an angel? She implies that it's an angel. And his appearance is the appearance of an angel of God. No Ramaod. Awesome. And I did not ask him anything where he's from. And he did not tell me anything about himself. I don't know his name. And he said to me, so she says, I was told by him, don't eat, don't drink wine. Don't eat anything tummy, because he's going to be in a zero in a beten until the day that he dies. Now, interestingly, she leaves out the child can never get a haircut part. And maybe that's just understood by the fact that she says he's in a zero that he's a uh, a nazir. Of course, nazir can't get a haircut. But the question is. What is the deal? Um, what is the deal exactly with um, a nazir? So I, you can spend a lot of time debating: is a nazir a good thing or a bad thing? It seems like there is definitely an opinion that says that a nazir is a good thing. However, here's the deal: a nazir is a good a good thing, in fact, because he is a nazir. It's a crown. The nazir wears the crown of Hashem. Nazir Elohim, the crowd, the crown of Hashem. But listen carefully. You can only wear a crown if you appreciate what the crown is. What if you're a baby and you're wearing a crown? It doesn't make any sense. This baby has no understanding of what the crown on his head is. It's just a shiny play toy. If the idea is that you're supposed to be infused with Kedusha, and that's how you wear the crown of God on your head in an exalted way. It doesn't work. And so this is part of the problem that exists within Shemshul. But before we get any further, let's just understand that she basically says, this guy gave me instructions and I didn't ask him any questions. Why does she say nothing? But Moshe Lichtenstein says, she says nothing to the angel. Perhaps she's afraid. Or perhaps there's a degree of passivity in this whole story. The, In fact, you could even take this one step further. She's childless. This is the first shofik that we get a story from birth to death of. Most of the shofim, we just get a small window into their lives. They appear and they disappear. Maybe you get snippets. But here we're going to start from the before Till he dies and is buried. And yet his parents know that they can't have children. That Hakarav Loyilad Bain is pretty, pretty strong. And yet, what happens? They don't do anything. There's no indication that they say anything. They just kind of accept everything as is. And that's a question that we have to wonder. Are they really, in a certain sense, um, to be indicative of the whole generation? The generation took the suffering 
and they just accepted it as is. We don't know why we're suffering. We don't really understand any of this. Kacha. We accept it. We deal with it. We move on. So before we move on to this chart, just want to point out a beautiful thing that the Abar Benel says. The Abar Benel says, Adyomoto. Why is it Adyomoto? So Adyomoto is, she wants to scare Manoah. If you don't listen, if we don't follow the rules, he will die. The child will die. She says, I don't want that to happen. And so that's kind of to put in there. So let's let's take a look. The Shimshon story sounds like the Avot seem to all be in this, the can of children's state. Shmuel. Also, we have a childless couple. We have Hannah and Elkanah. There's an angel in the Shimshon story. There's an angel in the Avot story. Avram is visited by the angels who say that he's going to have a child. Gedon is also visited by the angel. The Avod and Shmuel, Chana, cry out to Hashem. They beg Hashem, come on, help me out. Shimshon is silent. Gedon, there's nothing to cry for. But take a look at the outside of uh, the middle of the chart. Shmuel Manoah Shmuel Kana. Shmuel writes Sefer Shoftim, and he starts the story of Shimshon exactly the way he starts his own story. There is a man from this place, from a Shevet, and this is his name. It seems as though Shmuel is deliberately trying to tie his story to the story of Shimshon, which is shocking because the two stories are very different. Although, there is the possibility that Shmuel is also a Nazir. Food for thought. Shimshon, we haven't gotten this far, but spoiler alert, he's reluctant to believe the message. In fact, when the parak is over, they actually think that they're going, he thinks he's going to die. Shmuel doesn't get any message from the angel. But rather, Hannah gives herself her encouragement. Gido needs encouragement, just like Shimshon. The encouragement comes from the angel. But he and the Avot accept the encouragement, and they, they're not worried it's going to be okay. They, the interface with the angel does not scare them and make them think that they're going to die. So there's a lot of similarities. Which story is it? Is it like the Avot? I don't know. Is it like Gedon? Not sure. Is it like Shmuel? Shmuel seems to want to put us in that place. So Nechama Price in Mitocha Oel, I know two weeks in a row, that Mitocha Oel comes and gives us a beautiful idea. Nechama Price says, why? Why do we have this? She says, why to see what, lo- what low level the Jewish people are. Is Shimshon similar to Gedon? Who's already lower than the Avot Chana? So you read that Adolot. 
Yet Shmuel makes the connection to his own story to try to show something positive in Shimshon's parents. Shimshon's parents had value. That's an interesting, it's an interesting piece that you get to. If you read the art scrolls beginning of uh, of this parak, art scroll seems to tell us that Shimshon's parents are great people, are tzaddikim, high level. It's not surprising because often the art school likes to take a picture of the people being as good as they possibly could be. And that certainly is one way to look at it. But many of the other svarim that you take a look at, a beautiful piece by Rav Moshe Lichtenstein, Rabbi Hatton, Yigal Ariel, they actually have a harder time with that. They're not, there's no indication that they're amazing people. There's flaws within them that the text actually shows us. So let's continue back. Bring back, bring back this angel that came from God. I want to talk to him. I want to hear what he has to say. The Abar Benel has a beautiful take on this. He says he should, what Manoah is really saying is, why didn't the angel come to me? Isn't that, in fact, where the angel should go? The angel should talk to me. I would have been the one that the uh, that the angel should talk to because I'm the father. I'm the spiritual person. Please come back to me. Clearly, the Manoach doesn't have a great take on how he's perceived by Hashem. And so what happens he comes back, but again he goes to the woman. Again, the woman doesn't talk to him, but runs and gets her husband. And says to him, The God, the angel, this man is back. Because are you the one that spoke to my wife? Vayomer Ani. And he says, I am. Vayomer Manoach, Atai Yavod Varecha Ma'yev, Yishpatanar, Ma'asayu. He says, I want to know. Tell me. What is going to be with this child? Why does Manoach want the angel to return? So the assumption is he wants to hear the message himself. He heard it. Beautiful. But no, he wants to hear it directly from the angel himself. That's what we assume. But here's an alternative answer. It's an amazing, amazing answer by the Abarbanel. It's a long Abarbanel. So we'll, we're only going to read the big print that's in bold, and the others you could you could read on your own in the Abarbanel. He didn't want to know what the rules were. He knew the rules. His wife told him. He would not have said the words, um, says, tell me the future. Tell me what's in store for this kid. What will come? What miracles will he do? 
that he is being born through a miracle. And then he's going to be a Nazir. He's going to be a Nazir from the Betan. First and only one in all of Tanakh. Tell me what is great, what greatness will come from him. But the angel refuses. He did not want the word to get out because all, all, perhaps the word would get to the Plishti. And then the woman would be killed pregnant or the child when he was born. And that's what Manoach wants to know. And that's why Manoach wants the opportunity to talk directly to the angel. He says, tell me Tell me what is the deal with this kid. I know that something big is destined to come from this child. Can you tell me what it is? Just listen to everything I told your wife. If you could listen to everything I told your wife, it's going to be okay. Because don't eat anything from the grapes and the wine. And nothing to do with Toma. What I told you, what I told her, you should keep. I want to bring a carbon. Let's bring a, a goat in your honor. If you stop me, I won't eat. And if you bring an Ola, I'm going to go up to God. At this point, Manoach still didn't know that this was a, uh, a this was a Malach, an angel. He thought it was a human being. Okay, what's your name? Because when what you said happens, I want to be able to bring a gift to the Mikdash in your honor. Why do you waste your time asking such questions? My name is Peli. My name is Hidden. So what happens? She, he, he puts the carbon on this rock and brings it up. And when he does this, and this fire goes up to the heavens, the angel jumps in and goes up to the sky. And they fall on their faces. There is a rock somewhere near Kibbutz Sarah in the mountain range. So Josh Sarwadian, you can try to find it on your next bike ride and send us a picture of it. There is a rock that they say is quite large. It would make this it would make sense that it is the size of a Mizbeach. And they claim that this is also Mesorah. It's the rock that the the carbon was brought on. But they are shocked. They fall on their faces. You know what happens? The angel does not come back. And then they knew it was an angel of God. We're going to die because we saw God. She says, what are you talking about? If God wanted to kill us, A, he wouldn't take our carbon. B, all this stuff that he told us, all these things that are going to happen, they wouldn't happen to us if God was going to kill us. 
two psukim left in our parak. But I want to ask three questions. And this is actually something that I want to try to understand as we close out Parak Yudgimel, the first Parak of Shimsho. Why does his mother have no name? It's, it's strange. The Gemara gives her a name. It's from the word cell, shade. They see the shade of God. There is she's, He's going to bring uh, religion. He's going to bring God back into the lives of the Jewish people. But why does she have no name? And why does the angel of Hashem have uh, He's just this random, per, random entity. And why, of all the mitzvot that Shimshon gets stuck with, why is he a Nazi? Anything could fuel his strength. Why is it that that's what fuels his strength? Three questions. The three questions I want to try to understand in order to fully to fully understand our parent. And so, let's take a look. There's a message to the people. There is a message to the people that's going on in our parent. What is the message to the people? Rabbi Michael Hatt. Suddenly, a woman is introduced, anonymous and obscure, a vehicle for God's final attempt to change the tra trajectory of Israel's self-destruction. The Jewish people are not doing the right things. Like the wayward Sota, Israel strayed, and without correction, all is lost. It is precisely in order to highlight God's intervention in the story that the barren woman, the wife of Manoch, must remain unknown and silent. She has no name or background. She has no prayer in spite of her barrenness because the birth of the child will not be the product of her initiative. Unexpectedly. A me mysterious messenger appears to her, indicating that she will soon conceive and give birth to a figure that will initiate the process of Israel's rescue from the Philistine territory. According to Manhattan, there's a lot of symbolism here. She is the Sota, the Sota that you see, Bikilkula, the woman who's gone astray. God is sending a message to the Jewish people. She is the Sota. She is the Jewish people. But the Sota could do better. And the Sota, even if she doesn't admit her guilt, the people that see the Sota are supposed to be inspired and they're supposed to change. They are not supposed to be it's the way she is. Her son is going to be the Nazir with the hope that he's going to inspire the people. And yet, at the same time, what's his name? Her, the husband's name is Manoah. Manoah means rest. Take the easy approach. Are you going to take the approach of the Sota, which is to break from what you've done? Or Manoah, the easy way out. Naziris tells us, says Rabbi Hatton, that it needs to be tempered. When li life, life needs to be changed, but you, you can't completely throw everything on its head. Halacha is there to what? To slowly shape the situation. There's a silent voice in the story, and that silent voice is telling them what to do and what they should do and what they could do. But they have to listen. They have to listen to that voice. Lichtenstein says, Moshe Lichtenstein says, the track of Nazirachip offered by the Torah does not come to fight man's impulsive and bursting en energies, rather to find a lachic framework for them while channeling them and imposing certain limitations upon them. 
Shimshon was supposed to teach the Jewish people a way to understand the world, see the Canaan around them, and find a halachic framework to be successful. That is what was supposed to happen. But it doesn't work. It's not so simple. You see, the problem is you need guidance to succeed. And what kind of guidance does, does Shimshon really have? His parents? What kind of people are they? They don't come across as the greatest people, and certainly they don't come across as those that are going to take the bull by the its reins and, and make everything work. They're paths of people that will just follow whatever is happening. And so he's born. And he is blessed by God. Why is he called Shimshon? The Abar Benel suggests two answers. From the word shimesh to serve, he should serve God all his days. That's why they don't publicize that name. They don't want to push them to hear what they have in mind unless they do something for this child. If I hadn't suggested another possibility, maybe the reason why they give him the name Shimshon is Shemesh. That for the pantheons of God, Shemesh is one of them. Certainly in the area of Beit Shemesh near the Plishtim, the sun is very strong. It's 97 degrees today, the day of recording. Very, very, very hot. But perhaps giving him a non-Jewish, giving him a Plishti name, Nani name, it gives him the ability to, to camouflage when he lives amongst the Plishtim. If he's going to live among the Plishtim, let him at least have a Plishti sounding name. And perhaps if he has that Plishti sounding name, what will happen? He'll be able to fit in. That's a good question. Can Shimshon really ever fit in? But the Spirit of God began to ring as we finish the parak, I want to ask a question. What kind of guidance does Shimshon have? We said he probably didn't have any guidance. But even with good guidance, he needs to accept the mission. And the question that we will end off with is, does he accept the mission ever? Does Shimshon ever accept the mission? And for that, I tell you to look back, think back to that picture of the baby wearing the crown with the pacifier in his mouth. Can the baby appreciate the mission he's given? Can Shimshon appreciate the mission that he's given? And the answer is very, very complicated. And it is an answer that will take us the next three weeks to fully hash out. Thank you again for joining us. Have a wonderful week. And please keep walking in the ways of the prophet.